Hi folks, a quick announcement before the show today. First up, events. We've got three events coming up and they're all in person. I think I said earlier in the year that this was going to be the year of the face-to-face catch-up and it certainly seems to be going that way. So, Thursday the 13th of June, this is for you Brisbane friends. So the Brisbane Take On Board Meetup will be on Thursday the 13th of June, an informal gathering of listeners, program alumni, friends and connections. It's a free event, so come along. Next up, the 18th of July, this is for our Warnable and Great South Coast Take On Board Friends, an event run in conjunction with Leadership Great South Coast and Bernadette Northeast. Governance, from fundamentals to advanced practice. Super early bird tickets for this event close on the 10th of June, so get on it. Then the third event, a bit further down the track, the 22nd of August. This is for our Sydney friends, a Take On Board meetup in Sydney. Details of all of these events are on my website. There's a link to that in the show notes and I would love to see you at one or all of them. And a second quick announcement, a shout out to the new Take On Board Kickstarter alumni, Alex Cuthbertson, Anne Wallington, Audrey Umity, Ebony Worth, Emma Bonser, Helen Rizzoli, Julia O'Reilly, Kath Harris, Leah Bramhill, Nisha Amanala, Susan Fitoza and Yaz Volra. What an incredible group of people. I cannot wait to hear about the next steps that you're taking to the boardroom and I have no doubt you're all going to make an amazing contribution. Okay, that's it for today. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. I'd like to start by acknowledging that I am recording on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. I also acknowledge and respect the continuation of cultural, spiritual and educational practice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And I extend that respect to any First Nations people we might have here with us today. Being on a board can be an incredibly valuable, interesting and exciting experience. Yet it can also be lonely, challenging and, let's face it, pretty hard. So here at Take On Board, I'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you navigate your way onto a board, onto your next board and to build your governance wisdom. Now, on with the show. Last week, you heard the incredibly practical and valuable presentation from Tara Anderson on governing for profit and purpose. So as is always the case at these events, there was a lively Q&A session. And that's what you'll be hearing this week, including some of the questions we didn't have time to get to at the event itself. I have no doubt you'll find it just as valuable as Tara's words of wisdom from last week. So now, on with the show. Michelle Redfern, you are up first. If you could ask your question about advice to directors, over to you. Thanks, Helia. Uh, so Michelle Redfern and I currently sit on one industry steering committee called Wayfinder and it's about getting more women into the uh, supply chain sector and currently looking for a board, not very actively though, passively. So my question is, let's imagine that our company, a couple of directors in the company go, oh, we better pay attention to this. But our organisation, which has traditionally been a, well, a traditional business model, and now we've got pressure from wherever or interest or curiosity about let's get into this for purpose malarkey. 
how does a director who thinks, or say a director who comes off today's call and says, the next board meeting, I want to put this on the agenda, how might I introduce this topic in a way that is going to get grab people's attention and have us to explore it more? So, yeah, to, to do the right thing, but also, you know, obviously to, to uh, still appeal to those directors and other stakeholders who might be saying, hang on, we, we've got to make profits for shareholders. Yeah, excellent question. And I love the malarkey. I'll call that the technical <laughs> term now. Um, so two things I would say that we see as people transitioning in, there's sort of two impetuses, not a word, for this, drivers. One is the sort of compliance have to side because there's pressure. And then the other is the kind of storytelling element of it that pulls at the heartstrings. So you'll know your audience is best and you'll know which one of those to go with. But on the first one, I would say, Figure out with your organisational priorities, with the stakeholder groups you have, the customer base that you have, what do they care about? And then where is there an opportunity to look at purpose that's linked to that? So if you've got a customer base that's interested in a particular thing or there's a particular product or service there, look at how building in purpose to that might be able to extend your customer base because you've got customers that are interested in more ethical products or ethical sourcing or climate friendly options or carbon neutral or whatever it might be. So, so think about it from that perspective, same with your employee base, depending on who they are and, and sort of demographics and what they're interested in and investors and finance options. So your stakeholder base, what do they care about? And then where is there some synergy that you can create to say, look, if we started to add in this, it would actually achieve some sort of ultimate financial outcome around competitive advantage, more customers, more staff, whatever it might be. And then on the other side of that, there's the storytelling that pulls on the heartstring piece. So it's often what we find is that people come in for that first reason. They have to do it or there's a there's a hook that's ultimately linked to profit because that's the language that companies are, are used to and understand. And then once they do a little piece of it, then the stories start to come out of it and then they convert and then we call them the, the internal converts, they become the internal champions and then they're, they're like, this is fantastic, more please. And then it just builds and builds and builds because once you've got the first story and you can talk about the person that was impacted as a result of what you did, no one can argue with the story of another human that's had their life changed in some amazing way because of something simple that you did that linked into the business as usual that you were doing anyway. And then once you've got one proof point, you can just scaffold it. It's really um, interesting, Tara, because I'm so I'm a work, I advise workplaces on how to achieve gender equality. And this is exactly the model, which, of course, you know, workplace gender equality is a part of ESG um, for many organisations. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Tara. So the next one, and it, it, it touches on it, but Stephanie, could you introduce yourself and ask the next question? Yes, my name is Stephanie Bashir. Sorry for the anonymous. I just didn't know how to change that. <laughs> Thank you, Tara. That was an amazing and very inspiring presentation. I'm on a non-for-profit board, uh, for-purpose non-for-profit, and we are going through a reinventing the, the organization, introducing, you know, different revenue streams, as you mentioned earlier in the present. How would I go about actually putting this on the agenda? For, it's a very similar question to Michelle, but from a non-for-profit a lens which is slightly different and a little bit more challenging perhaps you know maybe not how would we go about putting that on the agenda 
just trying to see, even test whether the strategy that and business plan that we've recently signed off on fits in with some of these principles and, and structures that you presented. Mm. And it's sort of a similar answer in reverse, I guess. So in the first instance where we're talking about a corporate business that wants to embed purpose, you try and frame the purpose initially in the context of profit. And so in this instance, you try and frame the profit in the context of purpose. So for a not-for-profit board that's wanting to get into this, it's talking to them about how the social impact that you're trying to create and the vision that you've got, how much more you could do with that and how you could extend it in different ways if you had some revenue streams that were a bit more independent, well, bigger for a start, so more income, you can do more impact, but also often the revenue streams you get through trading activity, that's free cash flow for you to do as you wish. There's no grant requirements tied to that. There's no government contract tied to that. There's no tick box that you need to tick. That's somebody else's criteria about how you can do your impact which is my great frustration working in not-for-profits is the people that decide the impact you can create are the people with the cash that don't have the knowledge on the ground that you do to know what impact is actually most relevant. So the beauty of trade revenue as an income stream is that you can do with that as you wish, as you know how, as you know what's best. So framing it in that perspective might help with a not-for-profit board that's just getting used to it. It is trickier because often, well, in both directions, but the the competencies of kind of commercial activity and commercial revenue generation aren't necessarily inbuilt within not-for-profits, just as social impact creation isn't naturally inbuilt within corporate organisations. So sometimes it means having someone come in and advise and talk to the board often helps on both, both sides, an external person coming in and talking about what's possible and talking about different experiences, partnering with another not-for-profit that's done something similar and having them talk about their story often really helps. I hate the fact that, you know, it tends to be you need someone outside the organisation to come in and tell them as opposed to you standing there going, hey, hello, everybody, how about we do this? Get someone else to come in and say it and they go, that's a great idea. (laughs) So that can help too. But I would say initially frame it in the context of ability to create more social impact by doing this. Thank you. Thank you. They've been jumping around, I think, over here. I'm going to go to Penny next who asked about social impact metrics. So Penny, can I pass to you? Can you introduce yourself and ask your question? My name's Penny Savitas. I'm a chair at In Good Faith Foundation, um, which is an organisation charity that assists survivors of institutional abuse. And I'm just interested to hear more, Tara, about social impact metrics, like how you sort of strike a balance between financial and non-financial metrics in that area. Yeah, so that's a whole step in the toolkit that I didn't even talk about. Um, (laughs) But essentially... Build it out for what's right for your organisation is what I would say and start small with it. So there are lots of different frameworks out there that you can pull from. But what we do in the work with Dragonfly Collective when we're advising organisations is we're looking at exactly the type of impact you want to create and then just picking two or three things to start with that you can start to track of how you're actually measuring against that. The challenge with social impact, it's really, really hard to measure. It's it's not easy because you always have the issue of attribution. So to what extent do you know that it was your exact thing that you did that resulted in financial independence for a cohort of women refugees or whatever it might be? Because, of course, there are other influences on them that are helping them on that journey as well. But what we do is try and pull it back to look at, as a result of the things that you've done, what tangible change can you see 
and how can you track that? And there's different ways to do it. So this is a short answer to what needs to be probably an hour's worth of conversation, but it's looking at picking the few things that you know you can track and then looking at how you can find out what the outcomes to those are in the short term and the longer term over time. Because again, the other challenge measuring social impact is it's not instantaneous. It often takes building up people's financial resilience and confidence to find long-term employment. That doesn't happen tomorrow after you put in place an action. So yes, it's it's complicated is the answer, I guess, and it needs to be done on a sort of case-by-case basis um, to really figure out something that's going to work. There's no silver bullet. Unfortunately. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Let me go back to the questions. Uh, Rebecca, I'm going to come to you next. You've got two there. If you can just ask maybe the one of those, because then I'll skip to somebody else and come back to you for the second. So, Rebecca, if you can introduce yourself and choose one of those questions to ask. Thank you, Helia. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Rebecca Cheney. I don't currently sit on a on a board, um, but I do advise boards on climate action. We've recently just published three briefing papers with the World Economic Forum on how chairpersons can get some guidance on climate action. So, so that's my link. Um, Tara, f- fantastic presentation and so much to think about. My question today is about board committees and the governance side of things. And what board committees that you've seen have worked most effectively? And particularly, I'm interested in your thoughts on on an idea I've I've been discussing with some board members around having a a stewardship committee, one that really has its focus on looking long term, because for so many of us, I think we see short termism as as a real inhibitor to this sort of action. So, yeah, just interested in your thoughts on on board committees. What I've seen work best is actually when there's three I guess core ones and that's that can be quite a lot depending on the size of an organization the stewardship one often for me is a strategy subcommittee which is then actually responsible for looking at all of the external changes that are happening around us scenario planning longer term strategy piece so I we have one of those in the organization I work at now and it, it works really well as a testing ground for us as the executives in the organization to bring in our ideas saying we've seen these market shifts the competitor landscape is changing in this way can we just workshop it out with you and get your brains to help us think about where might we take this and what might we do next and we do scenario planning often with that group and that works really well we do then have a separate social impact committee and that also works really well and then there's a finance and audit committee is the sort of standard one that most organizations have the social impact committee being sort of discrete in itself is really important to keep it focused and actually having both of those things the finances on one side and the social impact separate works really well because it allows you to focus on on just that impact piece and it tracks metrics in the same way that you'd look at financial forecasting you look at social impact forecasting across the different things that you're trying to achieve whether you're on track off track and it's where you can collect some of the stories as well that then can feed back up to the board around the difference that you've made in people's lives and the change that's happened that then becomes that infectious piece that they can then feed out and use across their networks for broader promotion of the organization but back down into the organisation as well to reinforce the good work that's being done. So I have found that those three pieces, when you put them together, work well. Um, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you had in mind. With that's this exactly what thing. I had in mind. That was an excellent answer. Thank you, Tara. Okay. <laughs> Fabulous. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, Tara. 
I'm just going to pop over here. Claudia, you've got a question about governments. If I can come to you to introduce yourself and ask your question. Thanks, Halia. Hi, Tara. Claudia Fatoni. Um, I sit on two statutory authority boards, Respect Victoria and the Adult Community and Further Education Board. And Separately, my day job work in the charitable sector. Um, I was interested in your views on what role governments could or should play in this space and outside of, you know, those regulatory compliance levers and whether you've seen any interesting examples overseas. Great question. There's lots they can do if they want to. (laughs) So the compliance and the regulation piece is really important because often it's the stick first that makes people do something that then they see the story, feel the impact and go, this is great, I love it, I'm going to do more. So it's actually really, really important as a driver that they do set up actual regulation that makes companies act in different ways because we've got early adopters in this room and and lots out there as well, but that's not quite enough to get the majority falling in behind behind us yet. But the other things that government can do around funding for the organisations in this space, I guess, and partnering with them and then creating strategies, government-led strategies for purpose in their jurisdictions. So what we've seen, we have in Australia at the moment, for example, is there's a social enterprise strategy led by government in Victoria and Queensland. They're the only two states. But there, um, Scotland is leading the way on that front and the rest of the UK is doing relatively well as well, but Scotland is a particular front runner. When they create, and, you know, there's the wellbeing strategy from New Zealand, Canada's got some looser strategies, but when government actually puts a strategy in place that says this is what we want to drive from a purpose perspective, a social enterprise perspective, and then strategies to support the sector to do that, which might be around training, it might be around funding, it might be around connections with corporate to activate different projects, when they actually put it in place and co-create it with the sector, the for-purpose sector itself, that's when we really start to see change happen. And when they listen to the sector well enough to, for the sector to tell them what it needs to grow and develop, and then that gets put into the strategy, which we saw that in Victoria and Queensland with the social enterprise strategies, there was actually a, a subcommittee set up with reps from the sector that advised the government on how to, how to create that strategy and what it should have in it. And we've now got some you know, good starting points that could always do more, of course, but some great strategies there for us to build on. So... Great, thank you. Great question. So, Rebecca, I'm going to come back to you. Brief intro and ask your second question. You've already heard from me on the intro, so I'll go straight to the question. It sounded a little bit, Tara, like there were a few for-purpose companies in Australia at the moment and an awful lot that sort of needed to get themselves there. Do you see that there's a a hybrid and therefore what percentage would you say really are in that for-purpose bucket and how many are perhaps on their way but perhaps not quite there yet yeah great question and also really hard to answer because the challenge we have in the for purpose space is what counts as for purpose and so we've got some categories in there so I can answer from that perspective so social enterprise from my perspective is the purest form of for purpose because we actually we certify them at social traders so to actually we check do they have purpose baked in and there's a range of tests we do for that and do they generate their income through trade and then do they reinvest the profit back into the business that's a classic social enterprise definition when you look at that there's roughly 20,000 of them in Australia 80,000 in the UK so as a proportion of the whole corporate sector small however that's only the social enterprise sector which is quite a specific construct then you've got 
B Corps, which we can measure as well because they are certified through um, B Lab, which is the international movement. So there's 3,000 of them, three and a half, I think, around the world, that is, only 400 in Australia. So the proportion of those that are kind of the, the purebreds, for want of a better word, is very small. But the proportion of businesses that are starting to grapple with this um, is much bigger. But to my knowledge, there's no, there's been no mapping or measurement of exactly the size of of businesses that are falling within that space. We, we only can see the trends of, of more and more starting to pick up the baton and, and wanting to play. And the trends are so important, aren't they, that we can see that the appetite for this conversation is increasing on a daily basis. So well done, Tara. You're in, you're in a great space. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. So Tara, one of the questions from someone is around well, let me just ask it as it is. Are you seeing the same level of commitment and acceleration in Australian companies compared to overseas companies? It's similar. Australia's a little further behind, I would say, um, but some of the global brands are, are driving this. It's often the bigger end of town that's starting this trend and is pushing this trend. So we're seeing that come through in those organisations that are based in Australia. But the sort of pure form of for purpose in the social enterprise sector itself much smaller in Australia than in other parts of the world um, the UK I know well from my time there it's mm. about four times the size but you know so is the population so relatively sort of on a similar track related to the UK the next one you talked about a large social enterprise in the UK that's got a social impact committee who was that just so people can look it up who was it and maybe you can tell us a bit more about it they're called London Early Years Foundation and that's where I work. They're one of the big ones and they have a cross-subsidy model where basically they provide early years education for families that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it, which is crucial for childhood development, which sets them up for the rest of their lives and particularly helps break the cycle of poverty for children from poorer backgrounds. Mm. So they run nurseries, early years education, where they have high fee-paying nurseries in some well-off parts of London and then nurseries in other areas where families from different backgrounds can also access them and then they use the fees from one to subsidise the other. So um, really interesting model and, yeah, impacts thousands of children. So it's fantastic. If you can provide me with the link to them, I will pop that both in the email and in the show notes to the podcast when it comes out as a podcast. That's amazing. Always good to showcase the people who are doing it extraordinarily well. Next question. Uh, if you're interested in working in the social enterprise space, what's the best way to get into this area? What's your advice there? I guess it depends where you've come from and, and what your background is, but there connect with the sector, start there. So there are social enterprise networks in every state around Australia. And there's also a peak body called Social Enterprise Australia that is just starting up. So depending on where you're based, I would join your local network. So for example, in Victoria, it's Senvic. In Queensland, it's QSEC. They've all got slightly different names but we can put links to those as well um, for people that are interested. And that's where you'll start to then meet and connect with other people in the space. And then that's where you can start to look at what particular industry you're interested in because social enterprise works across every single sector of society. And that's where you can learn more about the other members and then find those that you might want to connect with, start conversations, and then the usual joy of networking for job hunting begins. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Interesting, I've been to some of the breakfasts years ago, you know, back in the day we were able to have breakfasts and actually sit with people as opposed to this environment and some of those connections I've still got of just people I happen to sit next to it because they're all interesting people and even if it's not leading to, I mean, for me it wasn't looking to work in th that sector in particular, 
but yeah, it's just meeting interesting people that you can make connections with and learn from and gain insights and all of those sorts of things, much like these sorts of events. So there's a couple of questions uh, around can you run a more extended presentation on this topic and another one from Martina, who's the chair of a fantastic incubator called, I think it's Startup Shakeup or Shakeup Startup, one of those things, asking for can there be follow-up workshops where we cover examples from their organisations. What, what can you do there, Tara? So this is what the Dragonfly Collective does. We run training and advisory and we do that in different formats. So it's it's all about predominantly for-purpose business models. How do you combine profit and purpose and practice? So if um, an organisation needs really tailored support, that's where we would run advisory with them. And we can do bespoke projects depending on what's needed across all of the eight steps or across one in particular. And then we also run training sessions, group training sessions, where people can come in and learn with peers. And again, that can be, we do sessions on all of the eight steps collectively or deep dives into one in particular. So there, there are particular issues that people want to look at, then we do that in group format as well. So you can put some links to all of that info. So get in touch, folks. You know, you've heard all of this amazing wisdom if you need more whether it's, as Tara says, whether it's bespoke or some of the general information, Dragonfly Collective is the place to go and we will make sure there is a link in the show notes so that you can get in touch. Fabulous. Tara, that was amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom both in the event and in these follow-up questions afterwards because, as always, there's way too many questions. Is there anything else that you would like to add or share with the Take On Board community? I think just give it a go, get on board with this, get, you know, start playing with it, have fun with it. If you haven't started yet, start small and go from there. And if you're already doing it, there's lots of ways to extend and lots of other organisations to learn from to do it in different ways or bigger ways or extend it across different geographies. So just we need more people, more and more for-purpose leaders. So get on board and go for it. Fantastic. Okay, thank you. And thank you for sharing all of your wisdom with the Take On Board community today. Pleasure. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd really love it if you could also do some of the other podcast things. Share with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And, well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.